Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am a member here at CBC, and I have the honor of bringing the word this morning. This has been a passage I've been able to spend a lot of time in, um, and it's just so rich and so full of truth uh, that I've just been getting to soak in the last couple weeks, and I hope I can communicate that well to you today. God, just help me to speak clearly. I pray that your word would just come through, be clear to your people. I pray that we would leave here trusting in you all the more, our firm foundation, our cornerstone, the living stone. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you've probably heard the phrase, you are what you eat. But this morning, the phrase is, you are what you are built on. If you are built on Jesus, you will reflect Jesus. You will look like Jesus looks. You will reflect the foundation that you're standing on, the living stone that you're built on. You don't have to think too hard about this to understand that principle. Even if you take Jesus' parable of the, the two houses, the one that's built on the stone, the one that's built on the sand, representing people that hear and obey and people that hear and don't obey. Right When Jesus is telling this parable, he doesn't go into any detail of what the house actually looks like. The only thing you know about the house is that it's built on the stone. You know that no matter what the house looks like, no matter who built it or any of those things, it's built on the stone, so it's going to be solid. The house is going to reflect its foundation. And in the same way, you know that the house that's built on the sand, again, it doesn't matter who built it. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how hard they tried to make it strong. It's on the sand. It's going to shift. It's going to fall when the storms come. You are what you're built on. You're either going to be built on the rock, on Jesus, firm, steadfast, immovable, or you'll be building your life on something else. You'll be building your life on sand, something that will not last and something that will eventually result in you stumbling over the true stone, over Jesus, and being crushed. I personally got to understand this truth very clearly a few weeks ago. Uh, I, we've had some raccoons in our attic. And so I went up there to hunt for some raccoons to try to figure out where they were getting in so I could seal any holes. Um, And the first rule of walking in an unfinished attic is you stay on the rafters. You stay on the boards. Uh, Do not leave the boards. Those are your sure foundation. Everything else is shifting sand and will not support your weight. And so I went up there. I was wandering around our attic, which is a mess, by the way. Don't recommend going up there. Um, Realized very quickly, I am not going to find any holes where raccoons are getting in. So I looked around, trying to find a nest. And as I was stepping down on one spot, I realized, wait, that looks like a board, but that is not a board. And so I didn't step on it. And then kept going, kept looking around, finished up, was headed back down. And in that same spot, looked like a board, didn't think about it this time, and stepped right on it. And as I was standing there, I immediately knew I am not on the sure foundation anymore. I heard a little cracking, and it supported my weight for about like a second, second and a half. And then there I was going through it. Um, I'm all athletic and stuff, so I braced myself and didn't fall away. But I was, I was sitting there in my ceiling with my legs dangling into my bathroom realizing I had stepped on something that was not a sure foundation. 
still working on fixing that up. Uh, but the point is, we have to keep sight of the foundation. We have to look down. We have to see who we are standing on. We are standing on Jesus, the firm foundation. If we are on him, we will not be put to shame. But we can be tempted, even just like Carson was talking about last week, to turn to sinful defenses, to trust in other things. If we aren't careful about what we're standing on, we'll find ourselves standing on something that will not last. We'll find ourselves with our feet dangling into our bathrooms. Um, Yeah, so we know... um, Based on Carson's sermon last week, it was a lot about you don't go to sinful defenses. You don't trust in these things. That's not who you are. We don't wield the enemy's weapons in self-defense. That makes no sense for us as believers. It makes no sense for us that stand on Jesus. And this passage this week is talking about, okay, who are we? What do we stand on? Um, We stand on Jesus, the living stone. We have to look to Jesus to understand who Peter is telling us that we are. You are what you are built on. We must trust Jesus completely as the stone on which we are built, our sole foundation. So you've probably heard sermons and teaching on um, only trust in Jesus. Jesus is your foundation, all those things. And it can even be easy for us to think, okay, I've already figured out that truth. It's pretty simple. But... We are prone to do things in our own strength. We are prone to wield sin in self-defense. We are prone, even like the Jews, um, they're not the only ones that stumbled doubting God's character and plan when things didn't look like what they wanted them to. I pray that we all leave here with a firmer trust in the one we stand on, the one who gave everything for us, and the one we stake everything on. So I have three points today. All of them built off of uh, the starting phrase, when our identities are being built on Jesus, first we come to him. Second, we understand who we are by looking at who he is. And third, we trust him in his promises. So when our identities are being built on Jesus, we come to him. We understand who, who we are by looking at who he is and we trust him. And his promises. And so the first point, when our identities are being built on Jesus, we come to him. The, at the beginning of verse four, it starts off as you come to him. And that phrase is just a phrase that's packed with meaning because it's both pointing back to the verses and even the chapter preceding it. And it's pointing to how do we live out our identity in the verses that follow. It's pointing back to what Carson was talking about last week. We don't, uh, Turn to sin in self-defense, we don't use, um, yeah, we cast off sinful defenses. We long for pure spiritual milk, and we taste, if indeed we have tasted, that God is good. So if those things are true of us, if we're not turning to sin, if we are longing for pure spiritual milk, if we have tasted that God is good, the natural result of that is that we're going to come to him. You're not longing for pure spiritual milk. You're not, you probably haven't tasted that he's good if that doesn't result in you coming to him, getting those things, coming to his word, coming to his character um, to drink. And so the question to start off this morning is, have you, have you tasted that he is good? Have you seen the beauty of God's character? And right, where do we look to see that? 
first and foremost, we look to the gospel. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope. We had wronged and rebelled against a holy God. We deserved his judgment. And ultimately, we deserved death. It was a debt that we could never pay. We couldn't do enough good. We couldn't say the right things. We couldn't do the right things. We needed help. And God had a plan. He had a plan for how he was going to redeem us to himself. And that plan was Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life. He didn't deserve any of the consequences of sin that we live in. He didn't deserve to suffer. He didn't deserve to die ultimately, but he chose to on our behalf. He was the perfect sacrifice with no sin that was able to be the sacrifice for our sin. He died on the cross for us and he rose again, proving that he has power over sin and death. He has victory. It is finished at the cross and it's proved through his resurrection. And now he sits at the right hand of the father interceding for us. We're pure through him. He's fulfilled our greatest need. He's reconciled us to God. Have you tasted that truth? Have you considered it? Is that something that marks your life? If it has, then it's going to result in us coming to him, longing for him, wanting to taste more of who he is. We can think about the when we first believed, these truths were so sweet to us. We're forgiven. And even as we've grown up in the faith, Those truths have only become sweeter as we recognize more of who God is, more of who we were, but who we are in him. The gospel is sweet and the gospel makes us come to him. If you've tasted his forgiveness, you have all the proof that you need that God is indeed good. And so that's kind of looking back at what Peter has been talking about, but looking ahead, we come to him. And it's as we come to him and then... The rest of verse 4 is talking about who is him, who is Jesus, his identity as the living stone rejected by men and in the sight of God chosen and precious. So as we come to him, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So we are being built as we are coming to him. There's progression here. We continue to come to him. Our redemption has been bought and completed, but we are not perfected yet. We are still sojourners. We are still exiles longing for his return and longing uh, for all these things to be made complete, to dwell with him. So, come to him. Second point. When our identities are being built on Jesus, we understand who we are by looking at who he is. So the only way that we're going to understand Who Christ has made us to be is if we understand who Christ is first. We're called living stones, but we first must understand that Jesus is the living stone. He's the spiritual house. He is a holy priesthood. He has fulfilled the need for sacrifice. And as we want to understand who we are as the spiritual house, the holy priesthood, and spiritual sacrifice offers, we understand who he is in those things first. We look to his perfect example, to his perfect model, to understand who we are. And let me prove um, that that's intentional from Peter. So it's clear in these verses, okay, just as Jesus is a living stone, we also are living stones. But Peter means, I think, a lot more than this. I think he means everything that he's calling us. 
he's saying that Jesus also is, and we look to him as our foundation in those things and our model in those things. One clear example where he's already talked about this is it says in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. That call to follow in who he is. I'm holy, and so you should be holy in the same way. You should look like me in that holiness. That's the call there. The clearest example of this is in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So here, Christ's suffering is actually talked about as an example to us. He goes on to say, so that you might follow in his steps. Again, we're following in Jesus' steps. He is the model. We look to him to understand how we ought to walk. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so even some of the sins that it's specifically saying that Jesus didn't commit brings us back to chapter 2, verse 1 that Carson was talking about last week. Um, Don't put on deceit as a defense. Don't put on slander as a defense. Jesus did not uh, ever commit any deceit. And then talking about reviling, reviling being like slander. He didn't revile in return for the reviling he was receiving. He is our perfect model without sin. We ought to be like him. And 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Even him and his death and resurrection, we reflect that in our death to sin and living to righteousness. Jesus is our model. There's many more verses all throughout this book that are talking about Jesus is this, you also be this just like Jesus is. So yeah, just wanted to prove to you that's what Peter is meaning uh, when he's describing who we are, when he's describing our identity. And so first, let's look at Jesus, the living stone, to understand what it means that we are living stones. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Okay, when a Jewish reader is reading this verse, immediately all these lights start to flicker and ring because he's using language of a a well-known prophecy in the Old Testament. He's talking about the prophetic stone. So the Jews are familiar with this, and these are the verses that are in uh, 6 through 8 that are quoted. These are all talking about this prophetic stone, this messianic hope that the Jews had. They understood him as one that would come, that would be in the midst of opposition and all these things would be a steadfast and sure hope, a steadfast and sure victory. And they understood it as, okay, we, the Jews, when this, this rock comes, this rock of salvation comes, we're going to trust in him, and the nations that are opposing us are going to be the ones that reject him and stumble over him. God's going to deliver us through this rock. And we know that that's not actually what happened. But that was really probably their understanding coming into these prophecies is this rock is for us, and this rock is going to crush the nations for our, on our behalf. Um, yeah, so that's seen in the stone language, that's seen in him being rejected by men, and that's seen in him being chosen and precious, um, kind of reflecting those prophetic verses that we see in 6 through 8 that we'll get to a little bit later. And so, 
it's clear, based on what Peter is alluding to in the Old Testament, that he's talking about the cornerstone. He's talking about the foundation. He's talking about the one on whom the, yeah, everyone is being called to build their lives on. There's clear language of that. But it's interesting that he's calling him the living stone because in none of the Old Testament prophecies is this prophetic stone referred to as the living stone. And so, um, in order to understand this, we can actually look at Acts 4. If you want to turn with me right there real quick. Um, Here, Peter is speaking, and he makes the same reference when he's establishing Jesus' identity um, while being questioned by the religious leaders. So the, the disciples, they've, or Peter, he's, he's healed a man. Now they're being questioned by the religious leaders. And this is Peter establishing um, Jesus' identity to them. Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, shots fired, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Again, shots fired. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter starts off establishing Jesus' identity as we would expect. If you're going to talk about two things about who Jesus is, you're going to talk about his crucifixion, and you're going to talk about his resurrection. And he does just that. Also, in that, blaming them for his crucifixion. And then, in verse 11, he's establishing his identity by calling him this this prophetic stone that they would understand. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. And so this is a bombshell. They're thinking, okay, the nations are going to be the ones that reject the stone. But Peter is accusing them, no, you are the builders. You are the ones that have rejected the stone. You denied that Jesus is the Messiah. You denied um, the stone of salvation, the rock of salvation. And you, you even came to the point where you crucified him. You have done that. You are the ones that have rejected him. But he's the cornerstone. He's the rock on which we have salvation. And I think that's alluding to, um, yeah, this stone is not dead. This stone is not gone. It hasn't been tossed aside. No, it's come and it is the foundation. It is the rock on which we must be saved. And so with that in mind, that reference, when Peter is calling Jesus the living stone, I think he's highlighting Jesus's resurrection. He's highlighting that he's the cornerstone, that he's been raised again. And now we stand on him. Everything is built on Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. He has made us pure in that. So he's the living stone rejected, rejected even alluding to his death, but in a larger sense, just alluding to people will reject that Jesus is the Messiah. We don't have to look far around us to see people that are stumbling over him that have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the one that they have to build their lives on if they are to um, be saved. And he is the chosen and precious stone. In chapter 1, Peter has already talked about the prophets, realized that they, they were prophesying that what they were talking about wasn't for their own time, it was for a time to come. It was God's plan all along. He's been alluding to this stone coming um, all along. 
in verse 18. Uh, or in verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Again, this has been God's plan all along. He was chosen. This is the precious linchpin of history. This is how God has chosen to make salvation available to us. It's through him, the God-man, coming down, living a perfect life, sacrificing himself, and being raised again. Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the resurrected cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. And so what does it mean that we are living stones in light of Jesus' identity as the living stone? Right? We have to understand who he is to understand who we are. And so we, as living stones, reflect those same truths made possible because of Jesus. We already read it, but in chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so in the same way that this living stone is the one that was crucified and raised again, we also have died to our sins and been raised again to new life in him, to life in, in righteousness. That idea of, that baptism represents, right? We're dying to ourselves and we're being raised with him. In the same way that Jesus was rejected by man and Jesus continues to be rejected by man, it's promised to us that we also will be rejected. We also will be persecuted. We also will suffer for his name's sake. And just as Jesus was chosen and precious, we also are chosen and precious by God. In verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We too are chosen. We too are his possession. And if we're bought by the precious one's blood, how precious are we? We are precious in his sight. We are living stones just like Jesus. And so, what does it mean? Um, so living stones is, is our individual identity. We individually are living stones. But that identity points to a greater identity. And that is brought up as we get into verse 5. Talking about you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we, as living stones, we don't just stay just a, a living stone sitting there by ourselves. That completely defeats the purpose of who we are. The idea of living stones points to the need for these stones to come together to make a spiritual house. Stones, when they're by themselves, are just stones. But stones, when a builder takes them and puts them together, become a beautiful building. So, these next parts of our identity, these are not, I am a spiritual house, I am a priesthood, and I offer spiritual sacrifices. No, they're we. We are a spiritual house. We are a priesthood together. And we collectively in unity offer spiritual sacrifices. It is so opposed to your identity as a living stone if you try to do these things apart from the believers sitting next to you. You must do these things alongside them. Christ 
unifies us together. It's pure rebellion against him to try to do these things on our own. We need one another. We need him. Um, We are built on him, the cornerstone. And so, yeah, just driving this point home, a priest, uh, so yeah, rocks by themselves, they're just rocks, right? When they come together, they're a spiritual house. When we come together, we are a spiritual house. A priest that is a part of no priesthood and never operates within the temple is no priest at all. That is an imposter. Steer clear of that priest. He's not a priest. And then, if we are offering spiritual sacrifices, either individually or even if we're offering sacrifices in disunity with one another, that is, that is no sacrifice that will be pleasing to God. It's empty. So we're going to take some time to dive into what does it mean first that Christ is the spiritual house, that he is the holy priesthood, that he um, offers the perfect sacrifice, and then understand through looking down at our foundation, through being what we are built on, what it means for us to be those things. Christ, he was Emmanuel, God with us, God fully in the flesh. When you were talking to Jesus, you were talking to God. He was the mobile tabernacle, right? Wherever he went was where God's presence was at. And in the same way, we continue that as the church we are called um, the body of christ in first corinthians 12 27 we continue to live out being god's presence to the world we continue to live out being jesus's body and again that's not something that we do individually that's something we do as we come together as believers in acts 1 1 it says i wrote to you about all that jesus began to do and teach with the implication of that being that Jesus is continuing to work in the world and he's doing that through his church. He's doing that through his people. We are his presence to the world as we come together, as we are built up in him. In John 13, 35, uh, 34 through 35, we see that as we love one another, people will know that we're his disciples. As we interact with each other, as we're called to do, people will see that we are his, that his presence is among us. How we interact with one another, how we live amidst one another, how we are unified as a church reflects his presence. Our gifts within the body are given not to build up ourselves. They're not for us as individuals, but they're for each other. They're for the building up of the church. Yeah, are you... Inward focused as you gather, as you're around the body. Are you focusing on what you can get or are you focusing on the people around you, on building them up? Just like this picture of Jesus being the cornerstone, right? He's the first stone that's laid. He's the stone on which everything else is dependent on. You choose every other stone you put in this building based on the cornerstone that you lay first. And every other stone is dependent on that cornerstone. 
we are unique stones, right? But he's gifted each of us. He's made each of us unique so that we can fit with one another, so that we can reflect his presence to the world. Secondly, we're called a holy priesthood. And we know that Jesus, he is the perfect high priest and he is our perfect intercessor. Romans 8.34 says that he is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. The only reason that we can be priests at all is because Jesus is our priest. He is our intercessor. We can come directly to God's presence only through Jesus. And we know that he is holy. He was pure. He was perfect. He is perfect. Yeah, and we're called to reflect that. And that's not something we can do in our own strength. It's something that he's given to us. He's given us purity and holiness in himself through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, as priests, what does that look like for us? How do we live out being priests in the image of our foundation, in the image of Jesus? We intercede for one another. We care for one another. We call one another. Come into God's presence. Come, be with him. Come, let's, let's go to his throne. Let's read his word. Let's pray. Let's be thankful to him. Let's praise him. Come and see the God that we worship. We have direct access to God through Jesus. Do we take advantage of that often? Is that something that marks our lives? We're a poor priest if we aren't often coming into God's presence. Call one another to that. Also, we intercede for the the lost and dying world around us. We declare Christ as the cornerstone to a world that doesn't have Christ as their intercessor. We say, you must stake everything on him. You must recognize that he is the only name under heaven by which you can be saved. He's the only solid foundation on which you can build your life. Come to him. Stand on him. You have to. Sadly, some people don't, right? Some people reject that. Some people stumble. But it's our job to push on and to continue to show people who is Jesus the Christ, the Savior. Next, we're called to offer spiritual sacrifices. And we know that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, really the one that ended all sacrifices. He paid the debt of our sin. He took that death for us and rose again. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And so if sacrifices are done away with, what does it mean that we're offering spiritual sacrifices? Our sin debt to God, our ledger, it's been cleared. It's been filled. It's been paid. It is no more. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. We can't do anything to earn more salvation or to make our salvation more secure, more complete than it already is. So what does it mean that we offer spiritual sacrifices? Spiritual sacrifice is not, I live, uh, is not, I did this for you, God, but I live this because of you, God. Everything already belongs to God. There's nothing on the earth that we could possibly give him that isn't already his. We can't do any good apart from him. We have no good deeds or anything like that within ourselves that we can give apart from the gift of his spirit making those things um, well up within us. 
right? We can't do anything for unselfish motives except by the Spirit, except by recognizing that everything is paid and everything that we get to do is just out of pure joy in response to what Christ has already done. So we can offer things that are pleasing to God. And that is through Jesus, through his sacrifice, through yeah, a way being made for that. But what is spiritual sacrifice? What does it practically mean for us as believers? What, what does it look like for us to give spiritual sacrifices? The idea throughout all the New Testament is, is very broad. It can go from just giving someone who's thirsty a cup of water. It can be praise and prayer. And it can be suffering for righteousness' sake. It can really be anything that is good. That kind of spread is best described by reading Hebrews 13, 12 through 16. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so the idea is that we offer things that are pleasing to God that we do through him. A sacrifice of praise is talked about. Even us, I think, copying Jesus' suffering, um, going outside the camp to bear the reproach that he endured, I think in the context that that's being alluded to as a sacrifice. In 16, don't neglect to do good. Just share what you have. These sacrifices are pleasing to God. And I think all of these are within the scope of what Peter is talking about here in verse 5. But I think Peter actually has a little bit more of a specific um, view on what a spiritual sacrifice is. So nine times in 1 Peter, he talks about do just doing good. Like, do good. And seven of those nine times, when he's talking about doing good, he's talking about it in the context of suffering and hardship. And so I think to Peter, uh, and yeah, here's an example. All right. Uh, An example of that is um, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, okay, there's persecution kind of happening there, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we're doing good as we're spoken against as evildoers and they see our good deeds. They, they glorify God for that. That's pleasing to God, uh, but it's in the context of suffering. In 2.20, for what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, doing good, suffering for righteousness sake is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then one more, uh, 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do good in the context of suffering. I think that is what Peter is saying here when he's talking about spiritual sacrifices. I think the general call is, is do good. Do good in Christ. By his power in you, not in your own strength. 
as a response to what he's already done, but even more, do good in the context of suffering. Suffering is a a beautiful and a good time to please the Lord um, through doing good. It is a gracious thing in his sight and it's glorifying to him. So do good no matter your circumstances. So we are living stones as Christ is the living stone. He died and rose again. He was rejected by man, but he is chosen and precious by God. He was chosen as the linchpin of history, the, the foundation of our salvation. We too, like living stones, have died to sin and risen to righteousness. Christ was God's perfect presence, and in the same way, we demonstrate Christ's presence as the body to the world. Christ was the perfect priest that intercedes for us, and we intercede for one another and the world around us, calling them into God's presence. Christ was the perfect sacrifice, and because of his sacrifice, because our debt has been paid, we can please God by doing good. Now moving on to the third point. When our identities are being built on Jesus, we trust him and his promises. Let me just read verses six through eight for us. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the original context of that first quote, which is Isaiah 28:16, is it's talking about Jerusalem's leaders. They've made a covenant with death. There's coming destruction, there's coming disaster, and to avoid that disaster, they haven't turned to their refuge and their strength in God, the God that fights for them. They've turned to a covenant with death. They've made, ref- they've made lies and deceit their refuge and shelter instead of the living God um, that is the only true source of shelter. They are not standing on the living stone. They are not standing on the cornerstone. They're trusting in Everything else. They, yeah, they've forgotten who God is. In Psalm 118, the, the next verse um, that's referenced uh, in verse 7, the context of that is there's overwhelming opposition, there's discipline coming, but in the midst of that, there's victory and salvation through this, this wild card stone that comes on the scene. Uh, and brings salvation, though some reject it. And so in the same way, the Jews, when they're confronted with the reality of Jesus, the Messiah, they miss it. They've been waiting all this time for the Messiah to come. They've been waiting for this prophetic stone. And when they finally see him, when they're presented with the, the mystery of the gospel being revealed in Jesus, the, the missing piece to the puzzle that makes sense of everything that's happened so far, they say, no, that's, that's not it. And they toss it aside. They reject it. They say, that's, that's not what salvation would be built on. That's not the cornerstone. And they become the builders that rejected the stone. And many still reject that stone to this day. 
Yeah, they were so focused on, yeah, idolizing their own plans, their own picture of the Messiah that they missed him when he came. First Corinthians one twenty three says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I think that stumbling block language is, again, referencing the prophetic stone. The fact that Jesus was crucified, the fact that the Messiah would be crucified to the Jews is, no, that's, that's not how God would do it. That wouldn't be his plan. That's not who he is. That makes no sense. And the same to the Gentiles. If the Savior you're talking about was crucified, that's a, that's a criminal's death. That's, that's a curse word. That's not how any God would do it. But it is how he did it. And it's, the beauty of the gospel is in that. And thankfully, for many of us here today, we've seen that. God has opened our eyes to it. and We've built our lives on Jesus, the cornerstone. And this stumbling that happens as a result of rejecting the stone, it's not just a, oops, like I tripped over this stone that happened to be here. Um, no, it's active rebelling and ignoring a warning. It's like if you saw a sign that said, severe ice ahead, stick to the marked path. Those that disobey that warning and stumble as a result of it is a result of their rebellion, is a result of them casting aside that warning. Um, and it's not just, it's likely for this to happen. We know that anyone that casts aside Jesus as the cornerstone will stumble over him. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the same way, we call out to those around us. We say, this is the only way. Put your full trust in Jesus, the cornerstone, the only means of salvation. And those that take that warning and disobey it and stumble, uh, they, they stumble as a result of their rebellion, as a result of casting that aside. And even in verse 8, it's saying that's, that's what they were destined to do. They were destined to disobey the word. Uh, and that's a sad reality, and that's a hard reality. The Jews, they expected a king. In John 6.15, the people try to come. They try to force Jesus to be king. In Acts 1.6, the disciples recognize, okay, you've done all these things, but when are you going to establish your kingdom? There's still this messianic expectation um, that the Messiah is this coming king, and he will be the coming king when he returns. Uh, The Jewish leaders, they expected a, a fellow idolater of the law because they were idolizing the law and building their lives on it instead of their relationship with God. They were doing sacrifice instead of obedience. They were doing ritual instead of relationship with their God. And they expected the Messiah to reflect that. And when he didn't, they rejected him. Do we ever believe that we have a better plan than God? I know that for most of us here today, we we do stand on Jesus, the cornerstone. He is our solid foundation. We trust him. We've built our lives on him. They shape how we live, right? We are what we are built on. We reflect him. But do we trust him in in everything? Or are there things that, that shake our trust in Jesus, our cornerstone? If, if we trust him in this, we ought to be able to trust him in all areas. If he has done the biggest thing, if he's satisfied our need for a savior, if he's satisfied our sin debt to God, like what more can we demand of him? He's given us all that we need. There are times that we question God. And in those precarious moments when, 
life doesn't make sense, when what God is doing doesn't match our plans or how we would do it or how we think God would do it if we had all the power um, in the universe. When that happens, what do we do? So a very common scene in just about any movie is someone is standing on a precipice or crossing a, a long cavern. And as they're crossing this place, as they're in this very difficult and sketchy situation, very precarious, what does someone always behind them say? Don't look, don't look down. I think that's actually what what Satan is trying to tell us when we're in these hard times. He's saying, don't look down. Like, you need to keep focused, keep looking ahead. Don't look at what's beneath you. But what we need to do is we need to look down. Because in those situations when we feel like everything is so shaky, when we're on the the edge of a knife, when we have to balance, if we just look down and dwell on who God is, we'll realize we're on a firm foundation. We'll realize we have enough room to to do a cartwheel or a somersault. We're not balanced on one foot. We are secure. But if we don't look down, if we think that that's the situation that we're in, if we don't dwell on who God is in it, we can start to doubt him. We can start to doubt his character. We can start to doubt his plans. We can start to be like, okay, this this thing I'm standing on, it's not going to last much longer. I don't think I can keep balancing on this. I need to jump over here to something else. Or I need to get out of here. Or even maybe there isn't anything else, but I just don't feel solid where I'm at. Look down. You'll see the Lord. You'll see who he is. As we already saw in verse 3, we've tasted that he is good. Remember that. Remember the gospel. So in situations when we are like the Jews, we're tempted to tell God, no, that's, that's not how it's supposed to be. You need to do it like this. Or say, surely God wouldn't allow this to happen. When there's cancer or an ongoing medical issue plaguing you or your family, and you ask the sovereign God who has the ability to heal, like, why don't you heal? When you're trying to sort out God's goodness and his sovereignty, uh, even just thinking about verse 8, that's a hard verse for us to swallow. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. God, how could you destine people to disobey you? How can you destine people to judgment? Why would you do that? That's a hard truth to wrestle with. Trying to reconcile that with, isn't it still our responsibility, God? When we're out sharing the gospel over and over, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, and over and over we're being rejected, we're being ridiculed, people hate us and shame us in it. They say that we're, yeah, causing people to go to hell. They say that we're, yeah, just not respecting people respecting what they believe. And we're watching people die day after day, stumbling over Christ, the cornerstone, their only hope of salvation. Why, God? Why don't you save them? You have the ability, right? You can just work in their heart. You can make them understand. You can show them yourself. Why don't you do that? These are real questions, and they're real things that we wrestle with. We ask God why, and that's okay. We have to do it humbly, and fixed on who he is as we ask those questions. Right? Job does this well. Job has all these crazy situations. God, why is all this happening? Why have all these curses happened to me? Why is everything uh, going so poorly? What have I, have I done something? Like, God, just tell me why these things are happening. 
And at the end of Job, it's not God saying, this is why I did this, this is why I did that. It's, Job, look at who I am. I told the oceans where they can come to and no further. I created Leviathan. I created all these things and I'm in control of all these things. This is who I am. And Job, even without a direct answer to his question, says, God, it was, it was foolish of me to ask those questions. You are good. I can trust you. It doesn't matter what circumstances are happening. And so in the same way, in hard situations, when we are finding ourselves asking God why things are happening the way they are, we have two choices. We can look down and see who he is, recognize that he is good, and we can trust him in it, trust him in all situations, and lay those things at his feet. Or we can not look at who he is, we can not look at his character, and we can just try to figure out those answers on our own, even while we're crying out to him, but not considering who it is that we're crying out to. I think that reveals idols in our life. It reveals things that we're trusting in, Things that we say, God, if you don't give me this thing, I don't think I can trust that you're good anymore. We start to demand things of God because we're idolizing ourselves. We're idolizing something like health. We're idolizing how we think the world ought to be. And that undermines our trust in God. Look down. We have to look down. We have to look at what we're standing on. God has provided for our greatest needs through the gospel. We have tasted that he is good. We can come to him as our good father and ask him for things. But we must trust that he knows best. He is our father and he knows best. We would all be much better served when faced with hard and confusing situations, when faced with suffering and trials, if we spent more time dwelling on who God is amidst them. Then the answer is, of why it becomes far less important to us if we recognize who we're standing on and who God is. We can trust him. And finally, I just want to end with, with one promise um, that is in these last couple of verses. Verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. If you believe in Jesus as the cornerstone, you will not be put to shame. Stand on the cornerstone of Jesus. The world will look at our lives and they'll call us foolish. They'll say this this gospel you're believing, this stone that you're standing on, that's, that's pure foolishness. And they shame us for it as they tried to do with Jesus. But through the resurrection, through the rejection, through the rejected Savior being made the cornerstone, we know that what man intended for shame and evil, God intended for good. Jesus was not put to shame. He lived a life of suffering and hardship. He was killed, but he wasn't put to shame because he was raised again. Now he is honored and glorified at the right hand of God. And that promise is for us too. He will come back for his own. We will not be put to shame. In the end, we will be with him. Everything that we're standing on, everything that the world accuses us of and persecutes us over, righteousness, goodness, 
identity is built on God, it doesn't matter. We will dwell with him when he returns. We will be honored while those that have rejected the reality of Christ's identity find themselves crushed under its manifest reality at his return. Christ is the cornerstone, the only solid foundation, the only source of salvation. You are what you were built on. Look at your foundation and you'll understand who you are. Trust in your foundation and you will find that you are secure and you will not be put to shame. Dear God, thank you that you are our foundation. Thank you that you are secure. I thank you that you are trustworthy, that you are good. I thank you that you've shown us that you are good, that you've shown us the gospel, that we know all we need to know about you to know that we can trust you. And Lord, even beyond that, you've given us so many blessings. You've worked in our lives in so many ways. As a good father, you've given us so many gifts. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We don't deserve that. God, I pray that we would come to you. We would long for spiritual milk. We would remember how good you taste. And that would drive us to you. That would drive us to live out our identity as living stones, our identity corporately as a spiritual house, as a priesthood that we would offer so many beautiful and pleasing spiritual sacrifices to you. I thank you that all of that is only made possible through Jesus. The mystery of the gospel revealed, the mystery of the Messiah revealed. God, you've saved us and you've given us something sure to stand on. Help us to understand more of who you are so that we can understand more of who we are and live it out to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.